one. Okay. So we've just prayed a prayer, really, haven't we, in that song? Thank you for your word, Lord. Open our hearts to your word. Well, Paul's been talking to the Philippian church, and he goes on to say, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who, are, who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth, eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. I'd like to invite Carl Dienick to come up and preach on that one. Well, we come uh, this morning to the last of our sermons uh, on salvation words, those words that uh, we use as Christians and words that the Bible use, uh, uses to describe what it means when we say that God saves us. And this morning we're thinking about the uh, concept of union with Christ. One of the uh, most important questions I think that we can ask ourselves uh, as human beings uh, is the question, who am I? Who am I? In uh, the musical Les Miserables, Jean Valjean asks that question. He's a man who spent years rebuilding his life. He had worked, uh, he'd been a criminal and he'd been a slave in the uh, French uh, prison yards and uh, he got out on parole and uh, kind of went missing while he was out on parole. And finally, he's, uh, he's been tracked down by this policeman, the indefatigable uh, Javert. But Javert accidentally arrests the wrong person. He arrests a lookalike, someone who looks like Valjean. And so Jean Valjean has to decide what he is going to do in this situation. Will he hide his identity? Will he pretend to be someone that he's not? and let this lookalike be condemned? Or will he reveal who he is, a criminal who broke parole, and so be condemned himself? 
But crucially, you see, his question is not, what will I do? That's what's so interesting. His question is not, what am I going to do in this situation? His question is, who am I? Who am I? Can I condemn this man to slavery? Pretend I do not feel his agony? This innocent who bears my face, who goes to judgment in my place? Who am I? Can I conceal myself forevermore? Pretend I'm not the man I was before. And must my name until I die be no more than an alibi? Must I lie? How can I ever face my fellow men? How can I ever face myself again? It takes all my strength not to break out in song as I read those words. <laughs> Who is Valjean? The criminal he was or the man he is now? And paradoxically, mind-blowingly, being the man that he is now means confessing to be the man that he was. He can't escape his identity. He tries to remake his life, but he is still who he was in some sense. Who are you? The questions of who we are and who we hope to be touch the deepest aspects of our lives. And in this passage that we read uh, from Philippians, Paul is talking about who he was and who he is now. He's talking about his identity, an identity that he traded in for a new one in Christ Jesus. Well, the situation that Paul is addressing is that there were some people who'd come into the Philippian church. Paul had established that church himself, uh, and there were these people who'd come in and, and who were saying that the Philippians were not really part of the people of God. They weren't really Christians because they hadn't been circumcised. They were saying that you had to be circumcised to be part of the people of God. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's a bit weird. That's a bit strange. But in the Old Testament, circumcision was the mark that God had given to the people of God. And there's a good reason for that. We'll get to that a little bit later. Why that was the sign and why not something else. But these people were coming in, you see, and saying that in order to be uh, part of the people of God, they needed the Philippians needed to be circumcised. And it's at that point that Paul chimes in and says no. It's at that point that he chimes in and gives his account of the transformation of his identity from what he was to who he is now. He lists all the things that had been part of his core identity in the past. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That was what the law said had to happen. He was an Israelite, the chosen people of God. He was one of the chosen people of God. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. One of the southern two tribes in the Old Testament that didn't get completely wiped out. The ten northern tribes went off and they were exiled and they kind of they never really came back. No one sort of knew what happened to them. But the, but Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the good tribes. He was a Pharisee, according to the law. Now we can't hear the word Pharisee without thinking Pharisee. We hear that word and we think that's, that's 
a bad thing, but Paul's using that as... He's, he's talking to people who would think that that was a good thing. To be a Pharisee was to care about the law. To care about the law that God had given his people. The historical background to that is in the Old Testament. God had rescued his people from Egypt. He brought them into the land that he'd promised them. And he said, now if you live for me, if you obey me, you'll stay in the land. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But the people, the people weren't able to do that. They didn't obey God. And they got driven out. They got, uh, they got defeated by the Babylonians and sent into exile. And when they finally came back from exile, they were determined to make a better show of things. They were determined to live for God. And the Pharisaic movement was, in a sense, a response to that historical reality. There were these people who were saying, we want to give our lives to live for God. That's what we want to do. And later on, in something called the Maccabean Revolt in about the 2nd century BC, it became an issue again. There were these people who were compromising to the surrounding nations and the Maccabean zealots said, no, we're not going to compromise, we're going to follow God. We're going to give our lives to God because that's what he wants us to do. And that's what the Pharisees were trying to do, you see. We hear Pharisee and we think a Pharisee is someone who says something, they're, they're a hypocrite, they say one thing and do another, and they're nitpicky. But that wasn't at the heart. That might have been what it became, but that wasn't at the heart of what it was. The zeal for God's law led to another aspect of Paul's identity before he was a Christian. He persecuted the church. Why did he persecute the church? Because the church said there are aspects of the law of God that don't matter anymore. They were denigrating, to his mind, the law of God. In the Old Testament, there was a, a priest by the name of Phineas who was known for his zeal. It's the same word. There were two people, God said, don't, don't uh, commit adultery, don't, sleep, uh, don't uh, go off and uh, sleep with these women from these other nations who, who aren't your wives. And there were these people who, uh, two people who flaunted that law and Phineas did what the law required, and he put them to death. And he was honoured by God, and Paul is picking up on that same theme. He desires to honour God's law and to see that God's law is kept. Paul had not been an arid intellectualist. He was passionate he was kind of sitting in his armchair with a book and, uh, and theologising. He wasn't a pew sitter. He was an activist. He's the kind of guy who'd be on Facebook, you know, arguing with atheists. Last of all, Paul says he was blamelessly righteous according to the law. The phrase uh, in the... Older NIV, legalistic righteousness, is not actually there in the new one. Uh, it's legalistic righteousness sounds negative to our ears. It sounds, again, like a bad thing. It sounds like what Paul was doing was making up his own rules that he needed to keep down to the most minute detail. But that isn't what he's talking about. His point is that the law provided a means of forgiveness. 
blameless or spotless sacrifices were brought in the place of sinful people. And Paul's saying, I was blamelessly righteous. You see, what Paul is saying is that the law provided a means for forgiveness. God said, if you bring these sacrifices in good faith, you'll be forgiven. Paul didn't think that he was perfect. He wasn't so silly to think that, that he'd never committed a sin. He thought that he'd striven to obey God and whenever he'd fallen, he knew that there were sacrifices that could make atonement for his sin. There's a, uh, a document that it's known to cool people like me as 1QS. Uh, it's from the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's actually uh, a book out there called the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, which is a collection, it's not really the Bible, it's a collection of manuscripts from a Jewish sectarian community, that is a, a Jewish early Jewish sect from around the time of the Bible uh, and they were the people who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found but they also had a lot of their own community documents and one of them is known as the rule of the community and it gives a bit of an insight I think into what these people thought uh, about the forgiveness of sins. This person writes, this Jewish person writes, however I belong to, to evil humankind to the assembly of unfaithful flesh, my failings, my iniquities, my sins with the depravities of my heart belong to the assembly of worms and of those who walk in darkness. For to man does not belong his path, nor can a human being steady his step, since the judgment belongs to God and from his hand is the perfection of the path. By his knowledge, everything shall come into being and all that does exist he establishes with his calculations and nothing is done outside of him. As for me, if I stumble, the mercies of God shall be my salvation. And if I fall in the sin of the flesh, in the justice of God, which endures eternally, shall my judgment be. And if my distress commences, he will free my soul from the pit and make my steps steady on the path. He will draw me near in his mercies and by kindnesses set in motion my judgment. He will judge me in the justice of his truth and in his plentiful goodness always atone for all my sins. In his justice he will cleanse me from the uncleanness of human being and on and on and on it goes. So it's not that people didn't believe that you could be forgiven by God. People believed in a merciful God. There's lots of problems with the Qumran community. I won't tell you about those now but but the point is, there were people who thought God is a merciful God who's provided a means of atonement. And Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I strove to obey God and when I sinned, I believed that God had provided a means of atonement. The most remarkable thing though is that Paul says that all those things are now nothing to him. Who was Paul? He was a faithful Jew who lived for God, so he thought, who lived within the provisions of the law, so he thought. And yet now he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Verse 7, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, compared to the, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost 
all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul gives seven reasons that he considers everything rubbish. He says he does it for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, that I might gain Christ, that I might be found in him, that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection, that I might know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul looked like a faithful Jew, but you see there was one fundamental problem. There was one very important thing missing. All the things he did obscured this crucial reality. And the crucial reality was that all those things were pointing to the Messiah. They were pointing to Jesus, to the Christ. Circumcision didn't make people part of the people of God. Circumcision was like a giant signpost of God's promise to Abraham that one day a descendant of Abraham would come through whom God would set the world right. And so every time parents circumcised their baby boys throughout the history of Israel, they would have asked this question, is this the Messiah that God promised would come through Abraham? Similarly, no Old Testament sacrifice was effective in itself. Instead, all those sacrifices looked forward to the day when God would make a perfect sacrifice for sins through his Messiah, Jesus. Whoever we are, this is Paul's point, whoever we are, whatever we have, whatever we've achieved, it's all rubbish and it's all loss if we don't have Jesus. In fact, those very things that we have can even be dangerous. It's not just that they're not worth anything, but they can be dangerous if they keep us from Christ. I don't know how many people watched the grand final yesterday. It was a bit of a letdown, actually, wasn't it? It wasn't a very exciting game. But some of the Hawthorne players who won were three-time premiership players. And uh, you would have lost count of the number of times that the commentators made that point at the end of the game. Oh, he's a three-time premiership player. Oh, uh, you know, Alistair Clarkson, three-time premiership coach. You know, and they showed the tables of how many times all these people had uh, won and, you know, all the other greats in the history of the game. Luke Hodge, only a small set of people who've won the Norm Smith medal twice. Great achievements. They are. I mean, they really are great achievements. But what Paul is saying is that we can achieve the greatest things in the whole world if we don't know Christ. They don't mean anything. I don't know what your dreams and aspirations are or the things that you have already achieved in your life. Your dream might be to be a famous artist or uh, a famous actor or musician. Your aims might be lower than that. You might just aim to start and run a successful business. To balance work and family life. To make it to the top levels in your occupation, in your organisation. To have children and to be a good parent. Those are all great aims. But Paul says it doesn't matter 
what you achieve if you don't have Christ. And in fact, if those achievements and if those dreams and if those aspirations actually stand in the way of Christ, then they're positively damaging. The very things that Paul that kept Paul from Jesus were not sinful things, but good gifts from God. The law, being born into a faithful family, a zeal for God, actually kept him from knowing the one person who could actually make a difference in his life. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, if it leads us away from Jesus, it's rubbish and it's loss. So Paul says, knowing Christ is better and being found in Christ is better. And in the rest of the section that we read, Paul goes on to prove why that is. He gives two reasons. The first reason he gives is in verse 9. He says, that he wants to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, this verse is highly structured, and I have a slide. I don't normally do this. This is a bit boring. It's a sentence diagram. Woo! Uh, And this is called a chiasm. But for once... It actually helps, maybe. So the structure of this verse helps you see Paul's comparison between his former life and his new life and what was wrong with his former life and what's right about his new life. Paul formerly had a kind of righteousness. He had his own righteousness. It was his own righteousness. It was from the law. But now he considers that rubbish because he has a different kind of righteousness, a righteousness which is from God, not from himself, not from the law, a righteousness which is by faith, not because of the, own, the, the things that he's done, and a righteousness which comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's why it's valuable to know Christ, is because the righteousness that he had before, he had a kind of righteousness, but it was a righteousness that doesn't go anywhere. He needed the righteousness that comes from God, and that is through the faithfulness of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Paul's looking ahead. Thanks, you can put the slide down now. But Paul is looking ahead to the day of judgment and he sees that he has two options. He can stand there as Paul the faithful Jew, circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin, zealous for the law. And he can say to God, God, this is who I am. Isn't that wonderful? Or he can stand so close to Jesus Christ that everything that's true of Jesus becomes true of him as well. He can stand there with all his achievements on display and also with all his sins on display. Or he could stand with Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great if the Day of Judgment was like a resume where 
you get a little bit of time to prepare, and you only have to put on it the things that are positive. We've all done resumes, uh, most of us, and we all know what things go on and what doesn't go on. We always put the best things on, and if it gets to an interview and someone says, and tell me what your weaknesses are. Sometimes I'm a bit of a perfectionist, and I can be too dedicated to work that I do. (laughs) But I'm learning. I'm learning to be more balanced in my life. It would be great, wouldn't it, if the Day of Judgment was like that? Just get to put your best foot forward. But the Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. The best things that we do are like filthy rags. Imagine that your life was like a garment that you weaved together over 60 or 70 years. And it was this fabulous, you know, it was like Joseph's, multicolored cloak in the Old Testament. You know, you've spent years and it's the most beautiful thing that anyone has ever seen. And yet imagine that at the same time that every sin, every careless word, every unkind thing you've ever done, every rude comment, every grumble, every moment of lust, every act of selfishness, every gift of God that you've received but you've kind of refused to thank God for. Imagine that every one of those sins becomes a mark, a blemish on the garment, a coffee stain here, a tear in the hem, a thread pulled, a hole cut out, patch eaten through by moths. You see, there's two options for the day of judgment. To stand in our filthy rags, our best efforts eaten through by our sin, or to stand so close to Jesus that everything that's true of him is true of us. That's what it means to be united with Christ. Paul says, I want to know Christ and be found in him. I want to be so close to Christ on that day and now as well that everything that's true of him is true of me too. I don't have a righteousness of my own, but I have the righteousness which comes from God through the faithfulness of Jesus Well, that's Paul's first reason. He trades in his old achievements, his old identity, to know Christ because only in Christ can he possess real righteousness that passes God's scrutiny. The second reason that Paul gives for why knowing Christ and being found in him is better comes in verse 10 and 11, and he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul leaves everything that he had 
behind and embraces Christ because he knows that it ends in resurrection. So think about all Paul's previous achievements. How many of them had led to resurrection? How many people were raised from the dead by being circumcised? How many people were raised from the dead because they were physical descendants of Abraham? Or because they diligently observed the law? Or even because they trusted in the law's provision for forgiveness through sacrifice? Or we could ask how many people had been raised from the dead by being born into a Christian family? Or by attending church? How many people have been raised from the dead by being generous and kind? How many people have been raised from the dead by serving tirelessly in a church? I'm pretty sure the answer is none. But Paul says, there's one man who's been raised from the dead. And Paul realises that now our only hope lies in him. Nothing we do can bring resurrection. Our only hope is to know Christ and to be so closely bound up with Jesus that when Jesus died, we died as well. And that when Jesus was raised from the dead, we were raised as well. Paul wants to know Christ. Not just to know him in his head, but to know him existentially, experientially, to be so bound up in the life and death of Jesus. That he shares in everything which is true of Christ. That theme is all the way through the New Testament. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. I don't even live anymore. Ephesians 2, we're told that we're being built in Christ into a kind of a human temple. And in him, Paul says, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. God lives in us because we're in Christ, because we're united with Christ and God dwells in Jesus. In Ephesians 2.6, we're told that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God raised us up already and already seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Where are you? In the branch Christian church. Where are you? Seated in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. All the salvation words that we've looked at over the last few weeks, all of them find their source in Jesus. Grace comes to us through Jesus. Atonement is through Jesus' blood. Conversion is from sin to trusting and following Jesus. Justification is through Jesus. Regeneration is through the Spirit uniting us with Jesus. You see, what makes Christianity Christian and what makes the gospel the gospel is not merely grace, though that's important. And what makes Christianity Christian is not 
merely the work of the Holy Spirit, though that's important as well. What makes Christianity Christian is Jesus Christ. You might have a lot of things, but Paul says here, if you don't have Jesus, then whatever you've got, it's nothing. And if it keeps you from Jesus, it's dangerous. But you might have nothing and have achieved nothing. And you might never achieve anything in your life. And there might be loads of stuff that you don't understand. But if you've got Jesus, you've got everything that you need. You might not understand any of the salvation words that we've looked at over the last few weeks. But you can't go far wrong if you just embrace Jesus and say to God, I've got nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Give me Jesus. Give me but Jesus. My Lord crucified. Paul traded in his identity so that he could know Christ and gain Christ and be found in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus Christ in whom your fullness dwelt in bodily form in whom is the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, in whom is life everlasting, in whom is resurrection. Father, we pray that whatever it is that we've achieved, whoever it is that we are, that you would help us to count all those things a loss for the sake of Christ and of knowing him, and of being found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness from you, by faith, because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Help us to know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that we've already obtained all that or have already been made perfect, but help us to press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.